I'm Toby M. Schreier, an artist and printmaker. I'm Corinne Cunningham, a writer. As siblings growing up together in Seacoast, New England, and now from opposite sides of the Atlantic, we've listened to and supported each other through the ups and downs of our artistic endeavors. We thought you might like to listen in to our conversations about creativity and process. And so we've created this podcast, Ink from the Embers, our musings on the roots and growth of creativity. We hope you enjoy listening in. So, old work. Do you have... Old work. I had a couple questions. Well, do you want to start with your questions? Yeah, sure, if you don't mind. No. Very practical question is, how do you keep and archive your old work? So... I am a huge fan of archival boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, my work is boxed. It's um, so archival boxes are acid-free cardboard boxes that keep dust out and don't degrade your work with acid. Please don't store your artworks or your papers in corrugated cardboard boxes. The acids in the cardboard will eat your stuff alive and yellow it, mm. and that's bad. Bad for archivalness. Uh, Did I have stuff stored in uh, corrugated cardboard boxes? Yes, but with a plastic layer in between while I was moving between countries. But, um, yes, archival boxes. um, If I was going to be going full-on museum, I would have everything numbered, dated, organized by year, um, separated out with, like, all folded in, you know, tissue papers. I have them loose in the archival boxes, kind of... By size, what fits in this box? I mean, kind of separated with the college years and the studio year from Rollinsford. I will stop referring to it as the failed studio year. We'll just call it the Rollinsford years. Yeah. There's a little bit, there's overlap between those boxes just from the logistics of size. It's like if it fits in that box as well, I have limited shelf space. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to keep something better organized, I'm going to keep the stuff that's active and for sale better organized rather than the stuff that's really just an archive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's kind of the physicality of how I store stuff. Um, I did have to buy some big flat folders for my big work. Um, to keep those flat and not rolled up in a tube, keeping your stuff rolled is really bad for the paper and the, the works. So if you can store things flat, please do. Mm-hmm. Um, I did used to work at a gallery and art museum just for our listeners out there. So a lot of this is coming from practical uh, collection storage. It's crazy t- for me to think about the money I've spent on boxes and archival materials, but it does help. I mean, it's not like a crazy amount. For the big flat files, those are going to be like $50 more or so. But for the archival boxes, you're looking like $8 for a box that can store a binder's worth of material. Wow. Wow. So it's just looking for archival and acid-free is important for that stuff. Um, My next question was, do you... Have you ever considered digitizing or do you digitize any of your work? So I tend to digitize my new work as it's being made. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's for publicity or sale purposes. So I can put stuff on, up on my website and you can have a good or at least decent digital image so that people can see what I'm up to. Uh, social media helps a lot um, as an impetus to digitize. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, a digitizing something for Instagram is, you know, a, a cell phone photo. Digitizing yeah. something for my website or archival per, per purposes, not purchases, is getting the scanner out or setting up the the DSLR and trying to get good pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do digitize less for archival purposes and more just for communications and uh, promotional purposes. Okay. But having a digital archive is handy. Um, I know it's like for some projects that didn't work out, like the coal miser, the the great, it's the great tit picture from mm-hmm. two years ago. Uh, Adrienne's phone. Google just told her two years ago that you did this in the studio. It's like, oh yeah, he mm-hmm. printed that two years ago. Thanks, Google. Nice. It's like those no longer physically exist, but I do have a digital record of them. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, from process photos is very helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's my my digi- digitization is a little haphazard at the moment, and yeah, you know, mm. that's digitizing. <laughs> Do you spend a lot of time looking back on your previous work? I was thinking about that for, as we were coming up to this episode because up to a certain point, I almost live or work in a time capsule because I have, or my active studio is also my gallery. So I have work on my walls from the past two, three years. Mm-hmm. So I have that old older work, maybe not the old, old archives, but... I do have that, oh, wow, that is three years back. That is a very different time period and even a different style now. So I see that growth and I have to, I don't want to say live with, but I do actively look at these images that I would no longer make that way. Right, right. How does that feel when you look at those? Good. It took a bit to get used to. It really took a lot to get used to. But having... Visitors in the studio space and having people come in to look at and buy stuff has actually helped because it takes away a bit of that self-analysis and self-judgment. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I look at that piece. I'd see it doing differently or I might want to try doing that or I might try this. Oh, but if that's the piece that people keep coming to and looking at saying how wonderful it is, like, okay, whatever. They're ignoring this current piece that I've poured my heart into for now. Okay. So my judgment of a work is really kind of irrelevant, and that's yeah. Have, having an active audience has helped with that. It's kind of a little bit of distance from an appreciation for the older work, but going back and that is one of the disadvantages of an archival box is you have to actively go open it and dig through mm-hmm. everything. Um, I did do that recently when I was uh, updating my CV, my curriculum vitae for uh, an application purposes for a show. It's like, oh man, I had these works in a show in Boston. When was that? (laughs) When did I make that? 
So that was just go back, check the dates on everything, and look through everything. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That, that was an angsty college kid. That's right. Mm-hmm. So really kind of flipping through all those. It, you know, I have reason to go back through maybe once a year or so at the minimum. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's just the, wait, that image, I've done something like that, or I want to reference something or see what I did. So I will dig back through. But I don't, I don't live in those boxes. They don't have a um active place they they do get covered in dust yeah yeah I mean, not not in a bad way that's they're they're protected yeah. by the archival box but they are not <laughs> they they are not uh in my face all the time so to speak right right do you ever think about like i mean you've got so much quote unquote inspiration all around you with the natural world. Do you ever mm-hmm. find yourself going back through for inspiration? Like, oh, I wonder yeah. Yeah, just because that was there's you've done so much work. Do you ever like, you know, some things just kind of build off of each other if you're like, yeah, oh, I need a I need a boost. I need something familiar. Yeah, or Again, it's, if you have a body of work, even if it's not a continuous body or if there's pauses in between, I mean, I, I joked about being an angsty college kid, but, well, that's part of my history. That is part of my life history and part of my creative history. Right. So everything I do is in a way built off of that and is or can be a reflection on that. And sometimes I'm making something and it's like, oh, man, this feels familiar Am I copying something I did earlier on or, oh, there's that print I did way back when that was a good idea that didn't quite get completed or how did I capture light there? Just to have that in my hands and refresh that mental imagery. It's like, oh yeah, that was a good idea or no, that actually wasn't a good idea. I need to change it to make it a good idea. So it's like looking at old notes and mining them for ideas. It's kind of like going back through a sketchbook. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, I forgot I did that sometimes, or you'll run across things. Yeah. There is, or, I keep, I've heard a lot recently, um, there's two knitwear designers, and I think it's happening more and more across the board where they're revisiting their old patterns mm-hmm. in part to make them more size-inclusive. Um yep. But also, like, oh, I, I've seen a handful of posts recently of people talking about that, like, I forgot I had this design. I really liked it now that I have more skills. Yes. How can I apply those to that old pattern and kind of bring it forward with my newfound knowledge and with my, yeah. you know bring it along with me for the journey instead of really leaving it far behind. Exactly. Or I know this is bigger in the illustration circles on social media, Instagram, Twitter. And so where you'll see an artist pull up an old work and they'll redo that work 10 years later. So it's like, Hey, here's this superhero I drew as when I was just starting and here is it again now with my current skills, my current style. That's kind of cool. Often with, um, you see this a lot with web comics because a lot of these are just labors of love that last decades. So they started as this angsty teenager writing this romance story. 
Yeah. And now they're in their 30s and have kids. Okay. How has the story changed? How has the art changed? How have the characters changed? So to look at that, oh, go read through the archives of this webcomic art. There's kind of a shock there. And sometimes when you go back to page one, it's like, oh, that's mm-hmm. right. But I've been following enough of them long enough. There's the, oh, yeah, I I was an angsty college kid right along with them. I remember those. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we've both grown. Goodness. But also, I mean, you think about the... Um comic strips if you you know the comic strips that went on for years and years and years you look at the beginning ones yeah you know i'm thinking like foxtrot and family circle like all of those i mean even just the the shape of them the shading of things like in a very mainstream way too if you have a book full of comics like garfield comics there is a huge difference from the very beginning to the end um that evolution is pretty cool to see. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, on my end, when I'm looking through a box or searching for something, uh, since I work in a visual medium where you kind of can look at something and in those few seconds, you've got that picture and it it's all there in its entirety. So that's, I don't want to say an easy, but it's kind of an instant gratification review of mm-hmm. going through the archives how is that for you as a writer? I mean, it's like when was the last time you read Farm Girl, your first novel that came out what two and a half years ago now, one year ago? Yeah, I'm I don't lost. think I've. I, it was two years and a couple months. Um, I have not read it in its entirety since one of the edits. Yep. You know, I. I was thinking about this. I. Every once in a while, I will pull up old files of stories that did not make it past two drafts or something. Mm-hmm. And those I can read with a lot of curiosity and a lot of um, like, oh, wow, that was a good idea and possibility. I have a very hard time looking at something like Farm Girl that's already out in the world and not seeing things that I would change. Interesting. Um, I know that there's typos uh, that I missed that a handful of other readers missed, you know, before publication. Um, I have a really hard time not honing in on those. And at the same point, I know because I self-published, I can go in and do another edit if I want to, but I kind of have to cut myself off from that because it's already out in the world. That one, it was a done is better than perfect kind of thing, and it needed to be out there in its in its state. Um, and so I think it's still somewhat too close for me to go back and read through in its entirety. Aside from, you know, I've done a couple online readings, or and I don't have a problem picking out a section and reading it, but... I don't know that I would go back and read it in its entirety for a little longer. Yeah, for another year or two, probably. Okay. (laughs) Um, That said, I also have not a great memory in terms of, like, remembering. I'm trying to find a way to put it because I, I have a good memory for, like, random stuff. But I can read through old NaNoWriteMo stories that I've done and be like, wow, I completely forgot 
that I had this happen in this story. Like I don't have a very strong memory about, yeah, I think unless I've spent an exorbitant amount of time in something like farm girl, I know really, really well. Um, Although I did, I remember seeing a review and somebody quoted a section and I was like, did I really write that? (laughs) It's like, Oh yeah, I did. (laughs) Um, but but I really enjoy looking back at at novels that didn't quite make it because it reminds me that I really can write, especially if you have some distance from it and you don't really remember and you're reading it fresh. You're like, well, it's not too bad. Like it always yeah. surprises me, um, like especially dialogue, because I think that dialogue kind of writes itself in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. The characters really dictate that more than more than anything. Um, and and always flows better. You know, if I if I know I have to write like, oh, I've got a lot of words I have to write today, a quick way to get through them is always dialogue. Yeah. Um, because it just kind of flows. And so I enjoy reading um previous work specifically for the dialogue yeah. uh, between characters. And then it's like, yeah, you can do this. You've done this before. It always, you know, looking at a past body of work it does encourage me because inevitably I feel like I don't write enough and so seeing that I have written quite a lot over the last decade and then some um, is always helpful I think yeah Yeah. so you do a lot of your drafting digitally is that correct yes yep and but you do a lot of your free writing and such, and you more exercise that more analog. Mm-hmm. So how do you? Those sound like two archival systems. How do you store or organize all of your writing? Yeah, um, all of the fiction work that I have is is online, other than like outlines. Um, mm-hmm. I yeah, I keep a notebook. For each project, um, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure I still have the ones for Farm Girl. I had at one point a lot, I had three drafts of Farm Girl printed out. And when we moved, I was like, I just can't see holding on to these. They're marked up. I have them all digitally saved, you know, this draft and this draft and this draft. So if I wanted to see the progression, it's all online. And so I did get rid of um, all of those hard copy drafts. Okay. But I, I'm pretty sure I kept the notebooks um, that had the um, the outline and, and little notes as I that I made for myself along the way. Um, but I, I have been writing in Scrivener for the last couple years. Um, and then I have that backed up on Google Cloud. Yep. So everything I have is in the cloud and and on my computer, and there might even be a third place it's at. Um, I'm not sure. It might be on our... I don't know. Lucas has it all. But yeah, so I have, I have all of that for my morning pages and journaling that I do for myself. I just have stacks of notebooks. Um, I find them very satisfying to look at. 
I will page through it. I cannot read most of my own handwriting in that way because they're not really, it's not really meant to be reread. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, there and hypothetically, you know, I could, I could burn them, you know, it wouldn't, it, that would be really cool. But uh, there is part of me that really loves the visual of like mm-hmm. seeing those stacks build up over the years. Like, because yeah. realistically, I think I use two or three, two or three notebooks a year for morning okay. pages. Because of course, there's like months here and there where I don't, where I don't do that. Um, but generally, I think there's like two or three a year. And their composition, they're not all the same. Some are composition books, some are moleskins. Like, it's all whatever is available. And um, and I just think it looks really cool in my on my shelf to see, like, bunches yes. of notebooks. Yeah, mm-hmm. unfortunately, or fortunately, I kind of passed my love of notebooks on to Finn, my son. He's got a, a stack of his own that he uses for various different things. Um and it, I keep buying them for him because I know he loves them. Um, he he finishes them too. Like he journals okay. and finishes them. But I know he's got some that he uses for sketching and some that he uses for journaling and some that he uses for like lists and ideas. So cool. um, I like that one of my kids at least appreciates a good notebook. Paige does too, but she doesn't really use them so much. She is much more like she just needs a piece of paper to do her thing. And then she'll like throw the piece of paper in a pile or whatever. And that's fine. Um, But, but yeah, there's something really special about filled notebooks, I think. Yes. Do you keep, I was going to say, do you keep, you must have loads of sketchbooks too. I do have loads of sketchbooks. Um, it's really fascinating. All of my sketchbooks stop between 90 and 95%. <laughs> like really? I, I rarely ever use the last few pages. Really? I don't know why, but it's hmm. like, oh, I think it's also because when I find a – I'm a paper nerd. I'm really picky about my paper. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have a sketchbook whose paper I don't like, I don't use it. Yeah. Um. So when I find – paper I like, I tend to, like, buy ten of them. Nice. So it's like, I have empty sketchbooks ready. And part is like, oh, if I have a sketchbook, and it's like, ah, what if I'm out and about and run out of pages? So I just start a new one at some point. Nice. But it's, I had seen or seen, I had listened to an interview this was on the Ask an Artist podcast uh, back when Laura Boswell, a printmaker, was part of that podcast. And they were talking about sketchbooks and using sketchbooks. And the other gentleman, uh, Peter Keegan, he's a portrait painter, and he talked about having a sketchbook and great tools, and you have this bound book. Mm-hmm. And then Laura Boswell came in after was like, yeah, I, I don't do well with bound books. My sketchbook is a stack of paper at the mm. end. They're all different sizes. They're all different types of paper. It's whatever I have on hand. They're taped together. It is a chaotic mess. <laughs> but I have this stack of archives still. So it's accomplishing the same purpose, but it's really... 
having the, I don't want to say a restriction, but having that set framework of a book doesn't work for some people. Yeah. And I know it's like in my projects, binders, I have a hard time fitting them into binders because I do have all sorts of weird sizes of paper and I work big, I work small and things get folded up and taped together. So I have that, but I also have my sketchbooks, which travel with me and it's a lot easier to carry than a big A0 piece of paper that's lovely to draw on, but good luck getting out and about in the park with it when the wind starts blowing. So it's an odd hybrid to have kind of such a disjointed archive where you have these books. It's like, oh, I remember that year. This is that process. And that was where I was. And then knowing that there are holes in that continuum because that work is just in another box somewhere, Mm -hmm. which I suppose is a very good reflection of my working process in my brain and my memory. It's Mm -hmm. all a little bit disjointed. It's all there somewhere, but, uh, it makes librarians cringe. Yeah. Yeah. Even like listening to you describe that, like I, um, yeah, I, that makes me cringe too. Thinking like, it makes me, it reminds me of, um, planners and I, I love a good planner. I love a good paper mm-hmm. planner. I use my get to work book religiously. I've tried not to use it because it's kind of bulky. Um, it's big, you know, I want to use something different, but I always come back to it. And I've tried a few times, like having multiple ones for different things. And it just, I, it, I cannot get my brain to work that way. I cannot get to jump from one thing to the other. And I tried bullet journaling quite a few times because I love the aesthetic of it. I love seeing these beautiful layouts that people do. But the idea of having things laid out in kind of random ways, you know, having the page like what – there's a random list in the middle of the book and that's the way that it's supposed to work. You reference the page number and you put it in the log and it's all yep. fine. But there is part of my brain that just, it's not streamlined in the way that works for my workflow. Mind, yeah. You know, I'm really curious about how different people store their work and how like the workflow process you know, it fascinates me that there's writers who can work from the back of the story forward, like or yeah. from the tail end of the story, because when I write, it tends to be pretty linear mm-hmm. <laughs> to work for my brain. Um, so it's, yeah, just, it's amazing how different people can function in different ways, you know, to what yeah. you're saying. And from what you were saying, it, it sounds, it's similar to watching Finn and Paige work. Um, you know, my two kids, like you were talking about the printmaker, you know, she's got all these stacks. That sounds exactly like Paige. Like it all works for her. She knows yeah. where everything is. There is a system to the madness, right? Yep. But to somebody on the outside, it looks like this chaotic mess of stuff. And like, how can that possibly work for you? But it does. And there's there's really some some beauty in like honoring that everybody's yeah. system is different, and if it works for them, that's awesome. It doesn't have to work for you that way, yeah. right? 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we've have talked about archiving. We've talked about reflecting on past work. I think one of the stereotypes of looking back on old work is like the cringy old work. Mm-hmm. It's like looking back, you know, the the trope of bad high school poetry. Oh God, I oh. love my old my old high school stuff. I love it. Seriously, yeah. do you like? Do you have stuff that? Sorry, I, you're no problem. Your I, <laughs> no problem. It's like I don't have. I mean, I wasn't really much of a poet, so it's like I don't yeah. have a lot of that. Um, I mean, that's I, I referenced my angsty college years, and there a lot of that would come through in the art or the subjects chosen. And it's like, okay, I can look at the execution of it and say. Oh, wow, that's interesting. I've learned a lot. So, okay, so there's an interesting composition. But it's like, oh, man, some of the choices. Mm. It's like, all right, yeah, you yeah, mm. you went there, kid. Yeah. Good for you, but, uh, man, all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny because when we moved, I spent some, you know, organizing our bookshelves and pulling things out that I hadn't seen for a while. And I have um, two bound you know, printed and bound um collections one from must have been my senior year of high school and then another one that i put together for a final project in college um, okay. in, during a writing class and um and i also you know in reading them i was remembering because i was a part of the my high school literary magazine and i think i worked on it for three years one of the years I was an editor, and I just remember how dark just about everyone's poems were and everyone's yep. pieces were. And I remember the advisor being like, you guys, we've got to lighten this up. We cannot. Like, <laughs> this is so dark. People are going to think, like, your whole class is super troubled. Like, it, you you gotta lighten things up, and we were like, "What are you talking about? This is great! Like, this is our these are our feelings. This is." <laughs> and she like, knew. Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember her being like, "I know." And every single one, every year for years, and and like this is the thing that happens with high school literary magazines. But this is especially dark. <laughs> <laughs> you guys put um, the cherry on top of this black cake. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, but but no, I I just I love looking. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed spending time in those pages because it just makes me remember, you know, how easy it was to kind of drop into writing and yep. to access those emotions. And um, yeah, I had one specific creative writing teacher in high school that. I remember just wanting to impress because like he always, he was super encouraging. He was like the, he was like Robin Williams character in dead poet society. Yep. Like it's just this rallying call. And I just remember like bringing my a game to those classes and that writing because like, I just wanted to, you know, be a part of that and to have that energy and to like, you know, participate in that at that level of excitement and creativity. And um, yeah, yeah. So th- for me, they're fun memories. Like, oh, I remember that ex-boyfriend and maybe I don't want to revisit that. Yeah. Like, oh, man, he was really a loser. Like, 
there's all that kind of stuff, but there's always like foreshadowing of different things in those writings too, that you're like, I, I was a lot smarter than I gave myself credit for, um, emotional intelligence and, um, writing wise, you know, I had access to a lot of words, which I don't always have right now with my 40 year old brain. It's a, it's a lot (laughs) different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Did you go through any phases during your writing where you didn't like looking back on on that or looking back on your past work? Not so much. Um, so I wrote a lot in high school. I sometimes wrote in college, depending on what classes there were. And then there was a long period of time where I didn't write anything. Mm-hmm. Um probably midway through college until until my kids were really little um, when I started blogging again. So there really isn't, there really is not a period of time or work that, that I would not want to look at. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of value in, I, I just think there's a lot of value and, um, there's not a lot of cringeworthy moments. Even if I look back on the blogs that I wrote during some tough times, you know, emotionally tough times, I just, I have a lot of tenderness for my past self at all of the stages. And I think writing is a byproduct of who you are. And, um, Darcy's growling in her sleep. Sorry. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, there isn't really a period of time where I would be like, oh, no, I don't want to look at that. Because if you're already looking back at your work, I think you got to be prepared for looking at looking at it, your work and yourself kind of holding that tenderly and yeah. honoring it. I don't know if that makes any sense. You're, do you have time periods of time? You're, the question makes me think that you do have periods of time that you might not, not want to so look at. Not so much. It's this is really because listening to both of us talk about our relationship with our past work mm-hmm. is we both have a very open and interested relationship with our our entire body of work going back yeah. to the early years and the growth and we look at it as such. I just think about, you know, those, I don't want to say the trope, but there is a lot of communal angst about older work or mm-hmm. you're, Oh, I wasn't as good back then. There is a lot of that self judgment with older work. Yeah. And it was, it's just stood out to me that that was almost completely lacking from our conversation about our, our previous work. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, I think that, um, I think both of us have an understanding that that's part of the process. Um, yeah. we're continually, you want, you want to continually be getting better. You want to be able to look back and see growth and progress. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Um, and so to have that expectation and that understanding that just that base level of, yeah, it's probably not going to be as good as what I'm working on now. And that's okay. That's the point And the purpose of that work is to add on to it and to move forward with it. 
um, and yeah. to see growth. And I think that's a really healthy mindset. Um, who knows? Maybe the maybe we're missing a big part of something. And <laughs> uh, if, if we can be missing uh, self judgment and anxiety, I'm right. okay with missing those. Honestly, I, yeah. Um, I know there. Are, this is the part of my brain Wikipedia citation needed. I don't know where this came from, mm-hmm. but the how do you draw a good bird? Well, you draw a thousand bad birds. Mm-hmm. But that's even it's not that they're bad. It's every step is a stepping stone. Yeah, yeah. and you can you can look back and say, like, "Oh man, that wasn't well executed in X, Y, or Z." But to see it as a step on the on the way really softens looking at some of the old older work. Right. Well, I, mean, I think yeah. as long as you can see that there's a purpose to to everything that you've worked on, I think yeah. that, that that helps because if you if you look at it, and I think that touches on things that we've talked about several times in these episodes of there is nothing that's wasted. Yeah. You know, there no work is wasted. And that's a mindset that is a choice. Yes. Really. Not always an easy one, but once you've started yeah. making it, it's a, it's, it's a, it's like a habit. It <laughs> it's, is. Yeah. 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 It's, it's hard to set up, but once you get it, it's easier to maintain. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Again, I think anything that you can do to bring kindness to yourself as an artist mm-hmm. in your process yes. is well worth the time and energy um, because we have enough challenges with inner critics and outer critics and um, a world that looks at art a lot of times as a pastime and not yes. necessarily uh, work, work. And, you know, if we can just surround ourselves and our past work, all parts of ourselves, and some kindness, it's a good thing. It was actually really kind of, or it's amusing for me, the shortest or the smallest snippet or the editorial view of growth is actually my uh, setzkashta. It's a drawer that would formerly hold a lead type for book printing or letterpress. So it's, Mm -hmm. they're traditionally mounted on walls now when you put little knickknacks in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have one in my window and that's what I display my rubber stamps in. And so it's looking at the variety of stamps and it's Mm -hmm. like stuff that I've made over the past few years and it's still out there for sale. Like I'm not ashamed of anything that's in there mm. at all. I enjoy all of them, and I enjoy seeing other people enjoy yeah. what's in there. Not just by buying it, but people, you know, it's like, ooh, that's a nice rubber stamp or kids looking at it. But to look at the ideas of what makes a good rubber stamp, what's a good picture for to put on a rubber stamp, and also the skill of cutting it. Mm-hmm how much those have changed or what doesn't change. It's like, oh, I did a maple spinner early on. That's a little piece of nature you find you can pick up and carry with you. That seemed like a great idea for a rubber stamp. Mm -hmm. 
I, I still take that idea. I use that a lot of, oh, hey, here's a leaf. Here's a feather. These are things you can pick up and take with you. These make lovely little stamps. That hasn't changed. Right. The level of detail I put in and the skill I put into it, well, I'm more used to working with the tools, the material. That's very different. But that doesn't make the maple spinner pattern that I made three years ago any less worthy. Right. And people right. still appreciate that. And I think that, again, going back to the early part of the, this episode where I talked about having other people interacting with my work actively and interacting having them interact with my work without a timeline because mm -hmm. I have a timeline in my head and yes, there's a timeline penciled in with the date on all the works, but that's not what people care about. That's not what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter to them that that's from 2018 or that's from friggin' earlier. I mean, I have, I think I have a print on my wall from 2009. Oh, wow. Nice. And people like it. It's a nice picture. It's like, oh, yeah, it is a nice picture. I wouldn't approach it that way, or maybe I would. Or that's a picture that was actually really a watershed moment for me in my relationship with old work. Because hmm. this was a piece documenting a time leading up to a really bad time. So it's kind of this was the upswing that was the pendulum hitting the window and shattering. Mm -hmm. And that document of that moment, right, that uh, blind moment right before the crash. So this was a painful print to look at. But yeah. it's a nice, pretty print. People don't know that history with it, and they think it's nice and enjoy it. It's like, oh, I don't have to put my history onto this piece of paper. Right. This piece of paper was created in that time, Yes. But anytime I look at it, I don't need to relive that. Mm -hmm. It's a nice print. Do you think that... If we look at you know, well-known artists, we know somewhat of their history. Mm -hmm. And we transpose that onto their work. You know, if you think about... I can't think about a specific, like Van Gogh or whoever, mm -hmm. uh, Monet, you know, these well-known people that there's biographies of and stories about. When you transpose those onto their artwork, does that change for you as somebody who studies art, really? Mm -hmm. Does it change your viewing, knowing people's timelines and histories, you know, because because you're not there yet where people are like, oh, this is an early Schreier yeah. where he was doing this, 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 and this. Yep. You could be at some point. They That could be transposed. Yep. Does that change anything for you when you look at well-known or even lesser-known artists when you know their history? For me, it it can I enjoy yeah. knowing the historical context. And it's really interesting that you brought up Van Gogh, where if you study the art history of the time, mm -hmm. you can actually look at his paintings as like, oh, he met Cezanne. You can right. see that in his work. Where that is, 
he's right. such he has a, such a transparency about his influences mm-hmm. um that makes him such an interesting case or if you look at Edvard Munch's Munch, I'm pronouncing it with Swiss German and I apologize because I think he's Norwegian. Um, the guy who did the scream. Oh yeah. You can look at his journey through life and see some of his mental struggles reflected in his work. Mm-hmm. Where at others, I mean, look at Picasso where you really see a more academic progress and less of I mean you can see some emotional influences there but you can really see other types of development there so it's so individual to each artist how they change over time mm-hmm. and I I do enjoy knowing their historical context and if possible some of their biographical context because it, it lets me see their growth or even their journey a little bit where I can't go back in time and know this person. And for some of these people, I probably wouldn't want to go back and know them looking at you, Picasso. Um, Is it necessary? No. Can you look at a picture and just say, wow, this is beautiful or eh, this Mm -hmm. doesn't touch me. Yes, definitely. But to look at artists, how their life has changed their work and how their work changes over the course of their life. That is a fascination for me. With, with more accessibility to artists themselves right now Mm -hmm. with websites, with blog posts, with social media, podcast interviews, do you, does it, I'm struggling with the words here. I've got an idea in my head. Does it feel like for current day artists, mm-hmm. present day artists, is there seeing that kind of more in real time? Is there a benefit to that? Do you think seeing some of that context? I, for me, it's still too early to tell. Yeah. I can see. Um, or as a reflection upon the work itself, it's hard to say mm-hmm. as a connection with the artist and even like building up a sense of community or building up that sense of, I know this artist more as a person and I'm more invested in their work. Yeah. Um, I think that definitely has a bigger impact. I'm thinking of, there's the artist Molly Lemon. She is a wood engraver. She has a podcast that I've just started listening to, actually. I think it's called Out of Ink. It's mm. two anxious artists talking about their work. So interesting mm. stuff. Um, you do actually know her work personally. Your kids received an advent calendar with her artwork on it. That's why it sounded familiar. Yes. Because I've been looking at that on our dining room table. Yeah. yeah. So really lovely work. Mm-hmm. But on Instagram, looking at how she has, she had a rough fall because business was going so well. This was a classic case of burnout. Yeah. So seeing that and seeing her work through that, through her social media feed has built a sense of connection. I have a lot of respect for her as an artist and as a businesswoman and as just a human being mm-hmm. figuring out how to take good care of herself. 
And she has a cute dog. So looking at that, okay, that builds a connection between her and her audience. Right. How is that reflecting on her work right now? That's hard to tell. Mm. What I see or the language it's talked about with, and I think probably the more academic art circles and I mean, it's the, the, the bullshit of an artist statement. And mm-hmm. if it's on the wall, no artist will admit it's bullshit, but have a beer with them. And of course it's bullshit. Yeah. Usually. Um, it's dangerous when it's not, <laughs> but that language in an artist statement, I think is, it's interesting how self-conscious many artists are about their biography. Hmm. And the la- taking the language of art history and using that in a self-analytical, self-promotional context. Mm-hmm. So it's taking the this language of analysis and judgment, looking yeah, judgment. We'll, we'll go ahead and use it. Looking back on an artist that has lived and died, and their work has had a life of its own for decades, if not centuries. Right. right. To apply that to you as an early to mid-career artist, or even if you're using that yourself as a late-career artist, Mm -hmm. that's a very interesting lens to look at yourself from and to appropriate that external language as an internal language. Uh I just went very, very abstract, and that's like master's thesis stuff there. I don't know if that was an answer to your question. I went down a rabbit hole. It is because um, because that's the thing. I'll, looking at past past art and past artists, there's been time to for it to breathe and to, like you said, have a life of its own, and to have more interaction. I mean, those artists probably did have a lot of interaction with um, critics and buyers and mm-hmm. um, people who were enjoying their work. But it's so much more so now. I mean, there's there can be so much more so more now. And to yeah. have that constantly available. Yes. You know, there's lots of discussions in writer circles about if you should read your reviews, if you should interact with your Mm. reviewers, because you can, you can go on and defend your book on Goodreads and people have gotten into traps about that. Um, and not gotten into traps gotten themselves in some pretty terrible situations because they've taken the feedback that's not really feedback. It's not really meant for yep. for the author. Um, they've taken that very personally. And um, you can insert yourself into the conversation in ways that weren't available yeah. um, decades and centuries ago. <laughs> and so that's kind of, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You didn't go way far out there. Okay. All right. Um, but, Just take but me no, a minute the, to process. Yeah. But no, it's the availability of biography is r- certainly interesting. Mm-hmm. And it can be really fascinating to see or, you know, 
artist memes where it's like the art and the artist where you have like this nine or three by three box with the artist in the center and like their best work from the last year. Mm. Hey, this is me. It's a great thing for self-promotion. It's interesting to see what they pick out to display. Yeah. But also the, this, we're recording this in the middle of December. So again, we get the end of year memes with a lot of reflection and a lot of looking back. Kind of funny that we're recording this now. This was not planned, folks. <laughs> but where, again, you'll see this, hey, here's something from, or my best picture right. from every year for the past 10 years. Those are always fascinating to be, to be able to share those bits of progress mm-hmm. where you don't need to wait for the posthumous retrospective of the artist's life to see what they were drawing when they were just putting brush to, to canvas for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's, we can share this and we can share our journey more and more now. It is really fascinating to see that collective growth. And I think mm-hmm. that's also can be really healthy where you can look, go, you know, go on Instagram like we all do, be blown away by this amazing artist. Oh man, look at how great they are. I can't do that. And then they share, hey, look at where I was two decades ago. And we're like, oh wow, I've been there too. We've all been there. We are all part of that journey. And to have that open is, there is something really powerful about that. Yeah. Again, realizing that everybody had to start somewhere. Yes. Um, Yeah. And people have to work to get to where they are. It doesn't just, this creative gift doesn't necessarily, you know, drop in your lap fully formed. Yeah. Um, That is something that, you know, I hate to use the word envious, but there is a little bit of envy um, when it comes to to artists versus writers because you really don't see, we've talked about this before. You really don't see the drafts in progress and to see, you know, unless you look at, there are some archived out there um, that you can, you got to dig, you have to dig for it. Um, So it is really cool to see progressions, right. You know, literal progressions. Yeah. Um, and that's not really something that you have in the writing world so much. No. True. Yeah. That, that is interesting because with even in just how we talk about artists and visual artists, you often talk about their earlier late work. Yeah. I don't hear that as much with authors. Mm. It's, I mean, yes, there is, will be a difference between an author's early work and an author's later work, but... That's not talked about as much. Yeah, that's true. That's really fascinating just from kind of a cultural standpoint that if you look at an author's body of work, it's almost expected to be more uniform than if you look at an artist's body of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's expected to be consistent. And that goes with, you know, sticking with the genre. It goes with um, what you expect from the authors. Um, And I wonder, too, if that's partly because... There's a level of editing. There's a level of mm-hmm. that makes it consistent um, in some ways. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I always feel a little not gypped, but 
like, oh, I don't know if I'd want to, I read, I read this person for their, if I were to read somebody's cozy mysteries, for example, and then they just kind of shifted to sci-fi, I, I might feel like that's not really why I liked them as an author. I go to them for this and now they're switching all the way over to that. I don't know if, you know, I'm not a sci-fi reader to begin with. So there are, yeah, there's a, I just lost my train of thought, but the consistency across genre and across um, just the quality of work, I think is expected. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't say that there's one that, like I'm thinking of Jojo, Jojo Moyes, who I've read all of her books and, and yeah, I, I can't look at them and be like, Oh, in her early work, she did blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I could see that she was writing more towards a certain market towards the, like her newer books are definitely different, yep. but they're, there's still that quality of, um, of similarities. Or you think about, you know, the Harry Potter books, those are consistent, you know, mm-hmm. all across the board. And then she shifted and things shifted with her in very um, not great ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. You're right. You really don't hear about it as much. Or like is- Stephen Stephen King's early work. You, it's not really a conversation that I have. Yeah. Maybe maybe people who are huge fans of. Yeah, but on on a larger cultural scale, that conversation doesn't happen like it does with art or goodness with music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where that the growth as an artist is, or growth as a creative, is much more transparent. It's almost allowed to be more transparent. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe with... um, Maybe as the years go on with self-published authors, we might Mm -hmm. see a little bit more of that. Um, But with the gatekeepers of publishing, and there's a certain level of having to play by certain rules. Yeah. I wonder if that has something to do with it. I I genuinely don't know. No, that's that's an interesting thought because looking back the Early earlier days of printing, where mm-hmm. to print a book took a commercial enterprise, so there was going to be a certain amount of, or a large amount of editing and a large amount of quality control, so to speak, of to go through this trouble to print this book. We're employing all of these people to take these lead letters and assemble them by hand. We're not going to print anything but what we think is the best. Right. Right. And be that a measure of quality, be that cultural gatekeeping at the time. It's the, we can only print so much, we're going to gatekeep this. Mm-hmm. If you compare that to visual arts, you do see that looking, again, going to the late 18, early 1900s with the salon. This was yeah. an academic tradition where you really wouldn't see as a layperson if you go in and look at this piece by the same person, if they've exhibited in the salon for the last 20 years, it would look pretty much the same because the salon had certain criteria. Yeah. And at that point, that was a central gatekeeper of to be an artist, this is what you did. 
So you may not see that growth because you have that editorial criteria. Mm-hmm. And certainly that evolved over centuries and changed. And then the Impressionists set up their tent out front and that was the age of the isms and art evolved much more rapidly to the uh, to the layman's eye or the general public. But without that rapid and open evolution, it's like the editorial voice is much more consistent than a creative voice. Take, take this out of uh, looking at old work and looking at external work and just to your own creative practices. Mm-hmm. If you edit edit your yourself, that will probably be more consistent than whatever you yeah. put on your free writing pages. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because now I'm trying to think back on, you know, the classic writers, um, and it's more of subject matter that changes and is talked about than the actual writing itself. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. It's like, oh, they were at a different point in life where they felt that they had more um, creative leeway to go into hotter topics or go into more taboo things because they'd established themselves already, um, but not necessarily the writing itself. So it's interesting how that takes not from the skill or craft more into the subject matter. Yeah. Really fascinating. Yeah. And And I think that, you know, in academic settings, that might be different. You know, if mm-hmm. you're studying writers yes. but as a whole, a cultural whole, I think you're right that it doesn't get talked about as much. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. That, Lots of food for thought. Yeah, that was a fun rabbit hole. <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, that was pretty close to the topics of what we set out to talk about, but yeah. it went, went in an interesting direction. Yeah. Thanks, Toby. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to our thoughts and conversations. Now, we'd love to hear from you. We're putting together a listener's questions episode, and we'd love for you to share your questions about creativity and our individual practices. We'd also love to hear about your stories, both the victories and the struggles with your own creative process. Send it over to our email address, info at inkfromtheembers.com, or DM us on Instagram, Ink from the Embers, with all the spaces being underscores. We look forward to bringing your voices into the podcast. Feel free to subscribe with your preferred podcast platform. You can connect with us using Instagram and Twitter, and find out more information on us at our website. All links are shared in the show notes. All content, including music, audio, and rambling, is created by us, Corinne and Toby at ink from the embers.